You're listening to Bible Prophecy Talk on the Revelations Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris. It's been a little while since I've released a podcast, um, and it's not because I haven't been working on this particular project, that is the releasing of the chapters of my upcoming book, Anti-Messiah, one chapter at a time as I complete them. The reason it's taken me a little longer is, number one, I wrote a chapter on Mystery Babylon, which I didn't record just because I have so much information out there on that already. And the other reason is that this particular episode is actually three chapters, and I didn't want to release them one at a time because they really need to work together. So I had to wait until all three chapters were written before I released this podcast. And it took a little while and some rewriting because it's um, a complicated topic, as you will see. So what it is, is it's a description of the basic Jewish eschatology, which we've talked a lot about uh, thus far. Also, Islamic eschatology. And then the final chapter is putting it together, seeing how both Jewish and Islamic eschatologies may work together uh, to further the uh, Antichrist's agenda. I also took down a previous podcast called The Islamic Antichrist, The Most Dangerous View, because I felt it was um, a little premature. I didn't really have all the facts about Islamic eschatology at my disposal. And in addition, it just wasn't very clearly presented. So I took that down in favor of this podcast, which says all the things that I wanted to say in that podcast in a clearer way and with uh, my facts much more together. Again, I want to invite people to write me if they have any questions, comments, or concerns about what I'm writing. If you see anything that is wrong or factually inaccurate, or you have scripture that trumps something that I'm saying, that's really important to me because... Well, one of the advantages of putting out a book in a podcast form before it's actually put out is that the people that are interested, that know the material or are familiar with the uh, basic concepts, can can be a kind of peer review. Any good book really should be reviewed by a number of people familiar with the basic ideas um, before it's put out, that they can make suggestions or uh, about the content. It's especially important with an issue like this that's uh, you know controversial. So I'm asking you to to be that for me. There's already been a number of great critiques that have made me reconsider some things, change the way I present other things, and in fact produce chapters that answer common questions that I'm getting and that kind of thing. So it's really important. You are at a disadvantage, though, because you are not able to see the footnotes, which give scriptural references. So you may be thinking I'm just making claims without backing something up. But I'm trying to keep the scripture references, for the most part, in the footnotes because I do think it interrupts the flow a little bit in some cases. So that's why you're at a disadvantage to one degree. Okay, enough of all this. I'll get right to this podcast, and I'll see you on the other side. Jewish Eschatology I have already discussed many details about Jewish eschatology in this book, and I will presume that the reader already has a basic knowledge of the things I'm about to discuss. This chapter will be an overview of the basic beliefs of Jewish people regarding the end times and a comparison of these beliefs with the Bible. I will attempt to clearly lay out in a chronological order how these particular beliefs could lead many Jews to respond to the Antichrist in a favorable way. I will then go into some specific details about Jewish eschatology, which I haven't yet had the opportunity to explain. 
The basics of Jewish eschatology are essentially the same beliefs as most premillennial Christians. This is because Jewish people base most of what they believe about the end times on a text that is mutually shared with Christians, the Old Testament. The Old Testament contains a great deal of information about the last days. For example, Jews and premillennial Christians would agree that there will be a time when the Messiah destroys the enemies of God, rules the world from Jerusalem, builds a third temple, and oversees a pilgrimage system where the Gentiles come to Jerusalem to pay homage to that Messiah. The areas where Christians differ from Jews are regarding their beliefs about how the Messiah will do these things. The Jews get their information about how the Messiah will make these events happen primarily from sources other than the Bible, various traditional texts like the Talmud and the writings of certain rabbis. In this chronology of events, I will be limiting myself to the beliefs that are most widely held by the largest number of Jews, as well as just those events that directly pertain to the coming of the Messiah and his actions. Messiah ben Joseph's Wars We have already discussed the fact that the Jews believe that two messiahs will come in the last days in the chapter we called the Wars of the Antichrist. The first messiah figure, Messiah ben Joseph, is said to fight great wars with the enemies of Israel and be completely victorious over them. In one sense, you could say that the first thing the Jewish world is expecting to see in the end times is a man to fight wars against Israel's enemies and be victorious. Biblical Connection I detailed in the Wars of the Antichrist chapter how Daniel 11:40-45 describes the Antichrist doing this exact same thing as one of his first acts. He completely subdues all of Israel's major enemies, including Egypt and a coalition of Arab countries, which include Iran, Iraq, Syria, Turkey, and others. Ben Joseph killed in Jerusalem. After the major wars in which Israel's enemies are defeated, Messiah ben Joseph will be killed in the streets of Jerusalem. The length of time that Messiah ben Joseph remains dead in the streets of Jerusalem differs, some say as long as 40 days. The Jews see Zechariah 12.10 as speaking of this killing of Messiah ben Joseph just after his wars. It says, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look upon me, whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. They see the word they, as in whom they pierced, as referring to those enemies of Israel who killed ben Joseph as opposed to seeing they as referring to they themselves who pierced him, a reference to the killing of Jesus. Biblical Connection Again in the chapter Wars of the Antichrist, I detailed how this is a direct chronological parallel with the Antichrist, who also, upon defeating the enemies of Israel, will go to Jerusalem, where he will be killed. Resurrected After Messiah ben Joseph is killed, he is said to be resurrected. Some say it will be Elijah that will resurrect Messiah ben Joseph, while others say it will be the new Messiah, Messiah ben David, who comes on the scene right at this point that resurrects Joseph. Biblical Connection The resurrection of the Antichrist appears to be one of the main reasons that the world follows him. I have argued in the Wars of the Antichrist chapter that this resurrection can be shown to occur in Jerusalem and directly after his wars against Israel's enemies and just before the abomination of desolation. In other words, here again we see a direct parallel to what the Bible says the Antichrist will do and what Jewish eschatology says Messiah ben Joseph will do. Biblical Connection After the resurrection of the Antichrist, he also takes his throne in the temple. I discussed this at length in the section of this book dealing with the abomination of desolation. Ben David's Wars According to Jewish eschatology, after Messiah ben David takes his throne, it will not immediately begin the time of peace that they believe is on the horizon. In fact, this taking of the throne will begin a series of violent events. The first is said to be a war with the forces who killed Ben Joseph. 
These forces are either Armorlesses or Gog of Magogs, depending on who you read, but the fact that Ben David will fight wars after he takes power is almost universal. Biblical Connection While it's true that the Antichrist will gather all nations to fight the War of Armageddon three and a half years after the Abomination of Desolation, there is no clear indication that I can see that he will immediately continue to subdue other countries after the Abomination event. It would seem logical, however, that he would take steps to avenge those that killed him after he resurrects, thus fulfilling the Jewish expectations of this post-throne war. I think that it is more likely that the killing of non-believers, which we will discuss in the next point, may serve to fulfill the Jewish expectations of this post-resurrection war, that is to say, a war against all those who will not accept him as their king. In fact, the Bible indeed calls the persecution of believers after this point a war, saying that he permits the Antichrist to, quote, make war on the saints for three and a half years. Killing of non-believers In Jewish eschatology, after Israel becomes supreme, it is seen as their duty to root out and kill all unrepentant Gentiles, those who will not submit to their Messiah as king. In other words, there is believed to be a time of religious genocide after Messiah ben David takes his throne. Biblical Connection Jesus said that after the Antichrist takes his throne in the temple, a persecution will begin that will be unrivaled in all history. This is a time known as the Great Tribulation. Though this technical phrase mentioned only once in the Bible has often been misapplied to refer to the entire 70th week of Daniel, it is clear in Matthew 24 that this unparalleled religious killing only begins after the abomination event at the midpoint. Chronology Summary The rabbinic teachings in Judaism about the Messiah's rise to power are so exactly paralleled to the Bible's description of the Antichrist's rise to power that it's without question that the Jewish people will be extremely vulnerable to the deception of the Antichrist when these events come to pass. Miscellaneous Points Regarding Jewish Eschatology There are a few issues that I would like to address that are germane to this chronology that I have not yet had an occasion to talk about in any detail in the previous chapters. Ben David, Ben Joseph, the same? Should we expect two different Jewish Messiah figures as a part of this deception of the Antichrist? I believe the answer is no. I can say that with some confidence because the Bible makes no distinction between the Antichrist who fights the wars, dies and resurrects, and the one who takes the throne in the temple. The entire idea of the two Messiahs only exists in rabbinic traditions because the Jews wish to explain how the Messiah can die and be mourned, as seen in Zechariah 12.10 and Isaiah 53. Obviously, they don't see this as referring to Jesus, so another explanation was required. They solved this by creating the idea of two messiahs in the end times. I believe that when the Jews see the Antichrist resurrected, they will have no theological problem with accepting that there really is only one messiah who fulfills all these prophecies, and that they were wrong about the two messiahs idea. The theology may even be explained to them at that time in detail by the false prophet, who they will see as Elijah, or it may be explained to them by the Antichrist himself. The idea of only one Messiah is much more theologically correct anyway, and I suspect it will be no trouble at all for the Jews to agree to this more correct doctrine, as long as the Antichrist claims that he is descended from David, a point which I think is necessary for this deception to work on them. There may even be a scenario in which he shows lineage from both Joseph and David, though I don't think it would be necessary. A Dangerous Difference in Jewish Eschatology and the Bible there are many points in which rabbinic traditions of eschatology differ from the Bible, but I would like to focus on the one difference that I believe Satan will exploit to great advantage. The Bible also speaks of the Messiah's defeat of the enemies of Israel just before the Messianic Age. Christians and the Jews would agree on this basic point. The crucial difference is the way that the Messiah will do this. In the Bible, the Messiah will defeat these enemies alone, without the help of any humans. While, on the other hand, rabbinic tradition says that this defeat of Israel's enemies 
will be done by a human king fighting conventional warfare against certain countries that have oppressed Israel. In chapter 19 of the book of Revelation, we see a picture of the supernatural war that the Messiah will fight. As we read it, notice that the armies he fights with are angelic, not human, and the war, if you can call it that because it seems very one-sided, will be completely unlike anything that an earthly king or a conventional army could do. Also notice the term he himself that is used several times, as this will be important when we look at the Old Testament counterparts of this passage. Revelation 19:14-15 and 19-21 says, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. This idea that the destruction of the wicked before the Messianic age would be accomplished by the Messiah himself is not just a New Testament idea. If the Jews restricted their view of this event to the Old Testament alone, instead of rabbinic traditions, they could have also come to this conclusion. For instance, there are several passages that mirror the one we just read in Revelation 19, like Isaiah 11:4-6 and Zechariah 14:3. In fact, I think Isaiah 63 seems to go out of its way to make this point very clear. The chapter before Isaiah 63 is talking about how God will deliver Israel from their enemies in the last days by the hand of the Messiah. The next chapter begins by speaking of how this event will happen. I will highlight the portions of this passage that make the point that he alone, without earthly armies, accomplishes this mission. Isaiah 63, 1-6 says, Who is this who comes from Edom, with dyed garments from Basra, this one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength? I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red, and your garments like one who treads the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger, and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was no one to help and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury it sustained me. I have trodden down the people in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. It could be argued that the main point of this passage was to say that he alone will be the one who pours out vengeance upon the nations. It's essentially a direct rebuke to the idea that earthly armies will be needed for the task of destroying Israel's enemies. I believe this declaration of his independent conquering of the nations is not mutually exclusive to the idea that angelic armies will be present as mentioned in Revelation 19 because of the phrase in Isaiah 63 that says, from the peoples no one was with me, which may simply mean that there was no human armies with him. The idea of angelic armies being a part of the judgment of the nations just before the Messianic age are numerous. One example is from Matthew 25:31, which says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. See also Matthew 16:27, Zechariah 14:5, Mark 8:38, Luke 9:26, Matthew 13:39, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10. The conquering of Israel's enemies with angelic armies is obviously something that no human can fulfill. 
the belief of the Jews that their Messiah will come on the scene by fighting human wars with human armies is dangerous because it plays right into the hands of Satan, who can easily orchestrate human wars. As a result of this tradition about Messiah ben Joseph, all Satan has to do is provoke a Muslim attack and help the Antichrist defeat those armies. It will be almost too easy for him to have the Antichrist declared the Messiah because of these low expectations. We now need to take a look at the eschatological beliefs of Islam and see if they too will play a role in the end times deception of the Antichrist. Islamic Eschatology I believe that Islamic eschatology will also play an important role during the last days, but not in the way that many Christians today think it will. Most of the ideas we're going to discuss about Islamic end times beliefs come not from the Quran, the central text in Islam, but from the Hadiths, a word which means tradition. The Hadiths are a collection of sayings attributed to Muhammad, compiled by companions of Muhammad over the course of hundreds of years after his death in 632 AD. Even in Islam, many of these Hadiths are considered to be spurious. By the 9th century, the number of these sayings had grown exponentially, some of them clearly contradicting each other. Islamic scholars had to decide which ones were authentic and which ones had been invented for political or theological purposes. I will briefly outline a few key points regarding Islamic eschatology and make some general comments on them. As in the section on Jewish eschatology, I will limit my overview of the subject to the most common and widely held beliefs about the end times in Islam. The Mahdi The Mahdi is the central figure in Islamic eschatology. In the simplest terms, he is a person who will restore spiritual greatness to Islam and fight various wars with its enemies. He will unite Islam spiritually and militarily and have power for seven, nine, or nineteen years, according to different views. He is expected to come on the scene first. Al-Mashi ad-Dajjal The Dajjal is the bad guy in Islamic eschatology. He is a man who claims to be the Jewish Messiah and will gain many converts to this idea. In fact, that's what Al-Mashid ad-Dajjal means, imposter messiah. Various hadiths have described him as a grotesque figure, often making mention of him being blind in one eye, though some say this is symbolic language used to refer to his singular focus on ruling the world. He will gain considerable control over the world, and will only be able to be stopped by the next character on our list, Isa. Isa is the Muslim version of Jesus, who they believe was a prophet, but not God. They believe he is coming back again, as the Christians do, but they see him as coming back to be subordinate to the Mahdi. The main thing that Isa will do in Islamic eschatology is kill the Dajjal. It is said that he will return on a mountaintop outside of Israel as the Mahdi's armies are preparing to go to war against the Dajjal. Isa says that he will kill the Dajjal during battle. Also, Isa is said to be a great help in converting many Christians to Islam. He is said to rule the world until he dies at a good old age. Holy Wars There are a lot of wars fought in Islamic eschatology, like the defeat of Constantinople and many other cities by the Mahdi. However, there is no war more important than the war that they must fight against the Jews and their false messiah, the Dajjal, because they believe the last hour will not come until they do. A very famous hadith says of this, Quote, Ab Huraria reported Allah's messenger, may peace be upon him, as saying, The last hour would not come unless the Muslims will fight against the Jews, and the Muslims would kill them, until the Jews would hide themselves behind a stone or a tree, and a stone or a tree would say, Muslim or servant of Allah, there is a Jew behind me, come and kill him. But the tree of Garkad would not say, For it is the tree of the Jews. 
I believe this need to fight an end times war against the Jews and the Dajjal will play a very important part of the Antichrist's end times deception, which I will explain in greater detail later on. Modern Christian Views of Islamic Eschatology A view that has become very popular among Christians is that Islamic eschatology will come to pass more or less as Muslims claim it will, except the man that Muslims will call the Mahdi is really the Antichrist and the man that they say is Isa is really the false prophet, and the man they claim to be the Dajjal is the real Jesus. I understand why they think this. In fact, I used to believe it too. But now I think the view is wrong, and even quite dangerous. The reason I say it's dangerous should be obvious to the reader at this point. Even if half of what I'm saying in this book is true, then I can't think of a more dangerous teaching than one which says that the Christian should embrace a man who fights human wars against the Muslims, defeats them, and declares himself to be the Jewish Messiah. In other words, if I'm right, then this Islamic Antichrist view is essentially preparing Christians to embrace the Antichrist. The reason this view is attractive to Christians is because it's simple to understand. After all, they have a guy who looks just like the Antichrist, that is, he's supposed to rule the world and kill Jews and Christians. And not just that, he has a subordinate sidekick that's claiming to be Jesus, which, with some tweaking, can look just like the biblical false prophet. There's even talk of things like a seven-year peace agreement. It sounds like an open and shut case, but I think there are a number of logical reasons why such similarities aren't really as amazing as people think they are. As I mentioned before, most, if not all, of these beliefs come from the Hadiths, which are supposedly sayings of Muhammad recorded by his followers hundreds of years after his death. Some of them were written closer to 1000 AD. Most, if not all, of the men who wrote Islamic eschatology, therefore, were aware of Christian end-times beliefs. I suggest that for the most part, all they were doing is taking Christian eschatology and reversing the roles and calling it Islamic doctrine. For example... As I mentioned, there is a hadith that talks about a seven-year peace agreement in the end times. It reads as follows. There will be four peace agreements between you and the Romans. The fourth agreement will be mediated through a person who will be from the progeny of Aaron, Moses' brother, i.e. a Jew, and will be upheld for seven years. So they see this as a peace agreement made between Christians and Muslims, mediated by a Jew from the priest class. They even had a hadith that says that the Christians slash Jews will break this covenant and attack Muslims despite the agreement, which obviously is a parallel to the Antichrist breaking the seven-year covenant. This hadith is quoted by many Christian authors as a kind of proof that the Antichrist will be a Muslim. I think such theories are overlooking the obvious fact that these writers were doing little more than reading what the Bible says about the end times, making the same claims with a few additions, but most importantly, casting Muslims as the good guys and Jews and Christians as the bad guys. The person who wrote this particular peace agreement hadith was Al-Tabarani, who died in 970 AD, almost 900 years after the book of Revelation was written. He was a major student of Christianity. In fact, Christian doctrine was kind of his specialty. To put it another way, he knew all about the Christian belief in a seven-year covenant that would be broken by the Antichrist in the end times. Such a concept was an established Christian belief from the earliest writers of the church. All he did was switch the roles and say the people who break the covenant, which the Bible says is the Antichrist, will be the Jews and Christians. Some might say, well, aren't they making themselves to be the Antichrist in this prophecy? Because the Antichrist makes the seven-year agreement. Well, no, they simply say that they will be a part of this agreement. It isn't clear who instigates it in the Hadith. 
If anyone, it would be the Jewish man from the tribe of Aaron, because he is said to be the mediator of the agreement. The breaking of the agreement, which is clearly attributed to the Antichrist in the Bible, they attribute to this Jewish man and the Christians, their version of the Antichrist, not to themselves. Any student of Islam knows that this taking of Bible stories and switching the roles to benefit Islam is a major aspect of their doctrine. For example, Islam takes a story like that of Abraham taking Isaac up to Mount Moriah for a sacrifice, and they retell the story. But instead of Isaac being taken up to the mountain by Abraham, it's Ishmael, the father of the Muslim nations, that he takes up. The official position of Islam is that the Bible, while still containing basic truth, has been corrupted by the Jews and Christians. They feel this gives them a license to make these role reversals so consistently, changing the roles to make themselves out to be the good guys and the Christians and Jews the bad guys. So you can see why the end-time scenarios of Islam are so similar to Christian beliefs. Christians believe that in the end times, the good guy, Jesus, will kill unbelievers, including Muslims, but all unbelievers are included in this, and set up a world government. If you simply change the roles, you have the good guy being a Muslim, kill unbelievers, who in this case are Christians and Jews, and set up a world government. It sounds like the Antichrist, right? That's what happens when you reverse the roles. It's not exactly rocket science. This modern Islamic Antichrist view held by many Christians today, which I will address in more detail in a later chapter, is primarily based on the belief that the Muslims know better about how the end times will play out than the Bible does. I know that sounds harsh, but it's true. For instance, they are accepting as a fact that there really will be a fake Jesus come back and be the sidekick to a Muslim king, as the Hadith say. Then they have to force this notion on biblical concepts. For example, in their view, the false prophet will pretend to be Jesus, which the Bible certainly never says, nor do I believe that the false prophet's actions imply this, but they have forced this doctrine on the Bible. That's what I mean when I say that, in a way, they're giving more stock to what the Hadith say about the end times than the Bible. So what are Satan's plans for Islamic eschatology? As I mentioned at the beginning of this chapter, I do think that Satan plans on using the end times beliefs of Muslims to his advantage in the last days, but not in the way that most Christians think. What I mean is that I think he plans on using the belief that Muslims must unite to fight a war against the Dajjal, the man who claims to be the Jewish Messiah. In other words, regardless of if a Mahdi or Isa figure shows up, a kind of Dajjal, a man claiming to be the Jewish Messiah, certainly will. This obvious appearance of the Dajjal alone will trigger the needed Muslim war, regardless of if nothing else they believe will happen comes to pass. Daniel 11:40 40-45 makes it clear that the Antichrist is attacked first by the Muslim world. His defeat of the attacking Muslim armies is the major thing that will propel him to his unquestioned acceptance as the Messiah, certainly by the Jews, and I fear by some Christian groups as well. In other words, all Satan needs from the Muslim world is to provoke them to attack him en masse. The Antichrist is said to be empowered by his god of fortresses, specifically to fight wars, so he's not worried about the military threat from the Muslims at all, but he needs them to attack him so he can look like the savior of Israel. Islamic eschatology regarding the Dajjal all by itself is the eschatological time bomb that will give the Antichrist the war he needs to look like the Messiah. I suppose it's possible that the Muslim world will choose from among themselves a Mahdi figure during this time to lead the war against the Antichrist, but I don't think it's biblically necessary. In fact, based on Daniel 11.41, the Islamic attacks come from at least two different kings. 
the king of the north and the king of the south. So I doubt that the kind of unification of the Muslim world under one military leader, such as the Mahdi, will happen because of that. If a man does claim to be the Mahdi, though, he will be defeated by the Antichrist, who they see as the Dajjal, almost as soon as he shows up, and the Muslim world will realize that they have been deceived early on. I do think that the Antichrist would find a lot of uses for a type of patsy Muslim Antichrist to defeat, especially if he plans on using such a notion to deceive Christians who need an Antichrist to be defeated before they will accept anyone as a candidate for Jesus. And for that reason, I don't dismiss the idea of a patsy Antichrist slash Mahdi figure altogether, though it's not something that the Bible talks about from what I have seen. The Islamic Antichrist idea that has become so popular is based on a number of other things besides Islamic eschatology, and I will do my best to address most of those ideas in a later chapter dedicated to that subject. In the next chapter, however, I will try to make some sense of all these eschatological beliefs among Jews, Christians, and Muslims, and try to lay out a possible scenario that will show how they will all work together to further the Antichrist's goals. Putting it all together, in attempting to come up with a chronological scenario, that takes into account all that we've learned so far, I will admittedly be speculating quite a bit. This is because there will no doubt be many geopolitical events that will happen between now and then that no one could anticipate. Therefore, I ask the reader to take this attempt at a chronology of events with a grain of salt, and understand that I expect some of the things that I'm about to say to ultimately be proven wrong. That being said, I do think that we can get a pretty good idea of how this will all look when it comes to pass even if some of the minor details can't be fully known. The Seven-Year Covenant While there are certain things that can be inferred to happen before the covenant that the Antichrist makes with many in Daniel 9.27, I think, biblically speaking, we have to start the end times narrative from this traditional starting point. I argued earlier that I believe this covenant is an attempt to mimic the new covenant mentioned in Jeremiah 31.31 that the Jews are awaiting the Messiah to make with them. This covenant would begin a massive reinvigoration of the Jewish laws and rituals in Israel. I also argued that the text in Daniel suggests that the covenant will include the restarting of the daily sacrifice. If this view of the covenant made by the Antichrist is true, then we can infer that this event will be of monumental proportions and is much bigger and broader than a simple peace treaty. For one thing, this means that the Antichrist is claiming to be the Messiah at this point, or at least doing things to make people believe he is. I say this because the concept of the new covenant in Jeremiah is something that must be done by the Messiah, both in Christian and Jewish belief. In addition, the construction of the temple is also believed to be only possible when the Messiah comes, though it's true that there are certain Jews today that believe that they don't have to wait on the Messiah to build the temple, but the majority of religious Jews would disagree with them on that point. We know that this covenant is made by the Antichrist, so it seems logical to assume that one of the first things we will see is this covenant with the Messiah figure and the reinvigoration of Jewish laws and rituals. The Jews claiming to have found their Messiah and starting work on the temple will be quite a spectacle. All eyes will be on Israel 24-7 from this moment on. This brings up several difficult questions concerning the false prophet, who will almost certainly claim to be the biblical Elijah. In Jewish thought, it is inconceivable that a person could be accepted as the Messiah without being introduced by Elijah. It would seem, therefore, that the false prophet will appear at the time of the covenant or before, since many Jews believe it will be Elijah that helps them with the difficult theological questions concerning the specifics of rebuilding the temple. This seems like perfect timing anyway. It may be that the Antichrist appears on the world stage before the covenant and becomes well known through political or military exploits in another part of the world, 
Such a view seems logical because we wouldn't expect the Antichrist to appear out of nowhere, declaring himself to be the Messiah to the Jews. In fact, I submit that his early career, spoken of in Daniel 7, about his coming from a ten-king confederacy after subduing three of them, accounts for his at least being well-known in some way or another before the covenant. The false prophet then would also come on the scene during this pre-covenant time, gain support in Israel in some way for his claim to be Elijah, become widely respected, and then, just before this amazing covenant is made, the false prophet tells everyone that the man who has been making waves on the world stage recently is their Messiah. It's possible that all this would be happening during a time that Israel is feeling threatened by their enemies. The Islamic Time Bomb In these early stages, there is no group that will be paying more attention to this monumental development in Israel than the Muslims. Even if, as some believe, a way to construct the temple next to the Dome of the Rock is possible, without tearing it down, there is no scenario in which the events that follow the covenant don't awaken the pre-programmed eschatological passions of the Islamic world. The Temple Mount is currently controlled by the Muslims, even though Israel technically has sovereignty over the site. Today, you can't be caught bringing a Bible or praying anywhere on the Temple Mount, let alone building an altar and sacrificing animals to Yahweh. Starting the daily sacrifice on the Temple Mount is just not going to go over well at all with the Muslims. I suspect that if the Jews really believe their Messiah has come, then they also believe that he's about to go to war with their enemies and be victorious. So the one thing that has prevented them from building the temple in the past, that is, imminent war with all Muslims, will cease to be a problem for them, as they believe the Messiah will protect them, and they might even welcome the chance to defeat the Muslims in the epic war that this action will cause. If the Antichrist has a proven military background, this may add to their confidence about this impending war. It's not just the rebuilding of the temple that will guarantee a war with Islam. It's also the Islamic belief in a coming Dajjal, the false Jewish Messiah, that will inflame their passions to go to war with Israel en masse at this time. The Antichrist will be well aware of the consequences of these actions, and will actually be counting on such a war. As far as Satan sees it, the bigger the number of Muslim armies that attack the Antichrist, the better, because he's attempting to make it seem like the Antichrist is fulfilling the messianic prophecies of the destruction of Israel's enemies. I mentioned that I'm not sure if these Islamic armies will be led by a single man or not. The Bible seems to suggest that they aren't. That being said, if the Muslims believe the Dajjal is on the scene, it seems logical that they would choose someone to act as a Mahdi, even if he doesn't exactly fit all the things that they were expecting of him. Remember that Isa isn't even expected to come on the scene until they're already involved in this war, so they certainly won't be waiting on him to show up. I personally think he never will, but I'm open to being wrong on this point. As I said in the previous chapter, if such characters like a Mahdi and Isa do emerge during this time, the group that will be most deceived by them will be the Christians, who, believing that they have found an antichrist and false prophet to hate, will by default be ready to accept the man who defeats them, which will be the real antichrist. The Victories of the False Messiah According to Daniel 11:40-45, the battles that the antichrist fights against the Muslim nations occur outside of Israel. This is also consistent with the Jewish belief that the wars of Messiah ben Joseph are fought in the desert. This means that the Antichrist, after the covenant is made and the temple construction begins, leaves Israel to go to war with the Muslim armies that have been so angered by the recent events. Daniel tells us that although the Antichrist is attacked first, he has no trouble at all in defeating his enemies. What's interesting to me is that it seems from the Bible's description of these victories that there is something about the way he fights wars that is so utterly impossible to defend that the nations he defeats become totally submissive to him. 
In other words, they fall under his total control after they see his war-making powers. I suspect that, because of Satan's help, the Antichrist is able to demonstrate something totally new with his warfare. Maybe it's supernatural, maybe it's technological, but I believe when they say, who is like the beast, who can make war with him, in Revelation 13.4, it is reflecting a sentiment that the whole world will feel. I think that it is this inability for him to be defeated in war that will ultimately cause the entire world to come under his control. After the Muslim armies are defeated, it will then become safe for Jews worldwide to return to Israel. This is something that they probably would have wanted to do when the covenant was made, but it was so obvious that a major war as a result of those actions was coming. Once they see the coast is clear and all their enemies are pacified, the Jews worldwide will begin to migrate to Israel en masse. The Ingathering One of the most important Jewish beliefs about Messiah ben Joseph is that after the wars he fights in the desert, he will lead many Jews back to the land of Israel. A quote from Nimonides, one of the most influential Jewish sages in the Middle Ages, says that the order of events is as follows. Messiah ben Joseph will appear, wipe out idolatry, gather in Israel, lead them to the Holy Land. This is also consistent with the Antichrist movements after the initial defeat of the King of the North and the King of the South. Because just after those wars, he marches toward the Holy Land too. As I argued in the Wars of the Antichrist chapter, this march to Jerusalem is in victory, not aggression, evidenced by the fact that once he gets there, he seems to be taking on all of Israel's micro-enemies, those lands that directly occupy the areas around Israel, although most of Jordan will apparently, quote, escape from his hands. It therefore can be postulated that his defeat of the Palestinian coastlands and the rest of the immediate but less serious enemies may be to make room for the masses of Jewish exiles that will be pouring into Israel after he subdues them. Right now, more Jews live in the USA than Israel, and if he plans on fulfilling the prophecies of the ingathering of the people, he's going to need a bigger Israel, and it explains this apparent real estate grab after the major wars. There appears to be more conquests to the east and north during this time, too. It's conceivable that the Antichrist is trying to extend the borders of Israel at this point to the borders mentioned in Genesis 15:18-21, quote, from the brook of Egypt to the Euphrates, which would include all of modern-day Israel, the Palestinian territories, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, and Iraq, as well as Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, Oman, Yemen, most of Turkey, and all of the land east of the Nile River. Or, at least he's trying to expand to the less significant, but still greater, borders of the old Davidic dynasty. This is speculation, however, and the reason that the Antichrist goes to war in the east and north before his apparent assassination in Israel could simply be for defensive reasons. Regardless of his reasons, however, he will be as victorious as before, and presumably able to do what he wants with the lands he conquers after this. The Killing of the Antichrist Who kills the Antichrist the first time, and why, is a mystery in the Bible. He certainly will be making many enemies around the world at this point, so it could be any number of candidates. Regardless of who does it, he receives his, quote, mortal head wound in Israel just after the previously mentioned wars. His killing does not appear to be the result of an invading army, as in the case of Islamic belief, because the Bible doesn't mention any more attacks from outsiders at this point. I lean toward an individual assassin doing this, but again, the Bible is not clear on the subject. Just prior to the killing of the Antichrist, the Muslim world will certainly be confused and disheartened, because much of what they believed was going to happen in the end times is not panning out. They are being defeated on all fronts by the man they surely will see as the Dajjal. I submit that they will be even more disappointed as the rest of the events unfold, but this killing of the Dajjal will be one last glimmer of hope that maybe their end times texts were right, 
After all, the Dajjal was supposed to be killed in their view, and now he has been. Granted, this killing was supposed to be done by the Muslim Jesus during a great battle, but I'm sure they can find a way to accommodate the less-than-literal fulfillment of this. The Jewish people, on the other hand, though disheartened by the death of the man they believe is their redeemer, will no doubt be cautiously optimistic at this point. This, after all, is exactly what they believed would happen, the death of Messiah ben Joseph in Israel just after the wars and the ingathering is simply the next step in the process. They will believe that all they have to do is mourn him in accordance with Zechariah 12.10, and he will be resurrected. And unfortunately for everyone, they will not be disappointed. The resurrection that changes everything. I should take a moment to address the theological problem that the resurrection of the Antichrist poses. I do not believe that Satan has the power to raise the dead. But at the same time, I don't see any way around the many verses that say that the Antichrist really dies. It just doesn't seem to allow for a fake death to me. I would recommend a paper called Can Satan Raise the Dead Toward a Biblical View of the Beast's Wound by Gregory H. Harris to anyone that's interested in this subject. To sum up the paper, however, it seems that God is the one who resurrects the Antichrist for the purpose of condemning those who do not believe the truth. In 2 Thessalonians 2, we find this verse which I believe tells us that God is the one who sends the strong delusion, which in this view is the resurrection of the Antichrist. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9-12 says, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them a strong delusion, that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The Bible is silent on if another man acts as if he resurrects the Antichrist. As I mentioned, many Jews believe it will be Elijah who resurrects Messiah ben Joseph. But all we're told in the Bible is that it happens. This resurrection is a major turning point in the end times chronology. Up until this moment, Muslims may have held out some hope that their view of the end times was correct. But because of a resurrected Dajjal and the complete subjection of most, if not all, of the Muslim countries, they will hopefully begin to see that they have been deceived by their religion. I hold out great hope for a massive Muslim revival at this point. I fully expect that many of the Muslims still alive will turn to Christianity, though it will be at the cost of their lives, as we will soon see. After the resurrection, Christians who may have been deceived in one way or another up until this event will also start to wake up. Perhaps they were toying with the idea that this man was the return of Jesus. Or, if the Antichrist doesn't claim to be Jesus, perhaps they may have been starting to believe that this man was the real Messiah and Jesus wasn't. In any case, after the resurrection of the Antichrist, an event that is so antithetical to Christian doctrine, and something that scripture clearly attributes to the Antichrist, I expect a mass awakening among Christians to occur as well. The temple is ready. After the resurrection of the Antichrist, perhaps directly after, he declares himself to be God in the temple. I don't know if this is something that he would have done earlier if he could have. In other words, I don't know if the temple was fully constructed before this time. In any case, he does so at the midpoint of the seven-year period, and this is when his theology also seems to change. We know that it is at this point that he stops the daily sacrifices, which he himself seems to have established three and a half years earlier. In exchange for them, he sets up an image of himself, the so-called image of the beast. He also at this time declares himself to be divine. I argued in an earlier chapter that this declaration of his divinity and the setting up of the image may be an attempt not for him to break from the pretense of Judaism, as is often suggested, but rather to bolster his messianic claims. 
Both actions are, in effect, closer to the doctrine of the biblical Messiah than his previous theology. The Messiah, as Christians are aware, is in fact God, so this new declaration of divinity may be backed up with scripture. As for the image of himself in the temple, I argue that even this step is an attempt to more accurately reflect the important messianic doctrine that the Messiah will rule from the temple during the millennium and receive the offerings from the pilgrims that flow to Jerusalem. Since the Antichrist cannot waste time by sitting in the temple himself, he sets up this image to try to fulfill this important prophecy. So, in effect, he is reinforcing his messianic claims with these actions, though the main difference is that he now requires worship. In the place of the daily sacrifice, he will institute an obligatory offering of gold, silver, and precious stones made in the temple to the image of the beast. The image has the power to kill those pilgrims who will not worship it. I personally believe that Satan will indwell this image for the purpose of receiving worship, but this is pure speculation. Time to make a decision. The persecution that follows the abomination of desolation is described as the worst one in history. We are told, in effect, that this persecution has its epicenter in Jerusalem and that it begins immediately after the abomination of desolation. So immediately, in fact, that people must flee at all costs when they see the abomination, and with great speed if they want to avoid the persecution that follows. These facts suggest that there are many people in Jerusalem who will not see what the Antichrist does as an abomination at all. The speed in which they carry out the Antichrist's orders to kill believers suggest a great zeal on their part. We can only infer the reasons that the Antichrist will give for his order to have believers rounded up and killed, but as I've previously noted, many Jews believe that when the Messiah comes, there will be a need for just such an extermination of unbelievers. This Jewish belief in the need for an eschatological genocide is different from the belief that the Messiah will make war on their neighbors prior to him sitting on the throne of David. This particular killing is expected to happen after those wars and after the final Messiah, Messiah ben David, takes his throne. They believe that at this point they will need to root out and kill all those who are left that won't submit to the rule of the Messiah in order to usher in the final and everlasting peace. In other words, there will be a very attractive motive for the people to carry out the persecution of unbelievers. The feeling of the day will be, kill all unbelievers or the utopia cannot come. It is at this point that the Antichrist really will rule the world. And I believe this is when he institutes programs like the Mark of the Beast, which will prevent those who don't have it from buying and selling. This begins the great choice for the rest of the world, accept the Mark and worship the Beast or die. Even though many people might not be convinced of his divine claims at this point, I think many people, regardless of their religious beliefs, will take the Mark out of convenience, to preserve their lives, or both. It will only be Christians and those Jews who will hear the pleas of the two witnesses that will refuse the mark and either be killed or go into hiding. Though much more happens after this, I will end this chronology here as these are the events that most pertain to the rise of the Antichrist and the thesis of this book. Thanks for listening. If you would like a free copy of the Christianity 101 DVD, which contains 8 gigabytes of audio, video, and text of various discipleship materials on a data DVD, Please go to any one of my websites and look for the Christianity 101 button. It's totally free and I'll ship it to you wherever you are in the world. If you would like to support this ministry or any of the others that I do, please consider a tax-deductible donation, which can be sent by PayPal using the email chris at chriswhiteministries.com or by clicking the PayPal button on any one of my websites. Another great way to support this ministry is by writing a review of the podcast on iTunes 
or writing a review of my books on Amazon. Reviews figure very prominently into the ranking algorithms of both of those websites, and the higher they rank, the more people that can be reached. Thanks for your time and for subscribing to this feed.